So, hello there, and welcome to another BGS English Department podcast, this time on the Ted Hughes poem, Telegraph Wires. Uh, this is Mr Briggs, and I'm here with... Monsieur Monarchis. And uh, we're going to be chatting through this poem uh, with a question, which is, how does Hughes's writing strikingly portray the telegraph wires in this poem? So, nothing very surprising about that question. It's exactly the kind of question you get from CIE, with one of those little... Uh, adverb and verb phrases in the middle, strikingly portray. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to talk through telegraph wires. We think it's quite a difficult poem, actually. Yeah, and we think, uh, we think it's... For, normally what we say to you is 45 minutes is not very long, and with a lot of the Ted Hughes poems, you're going to be selecting, really, the things that you do want to talk about. But there are a handful of poems, I think, and telegraph wires is one of them, where actually they are quite condensed, so you would have to have very good detailed notes to... Um, write your two-and-a-half-side essay or whatever it is on this one. So, yeah. Absolutely. If you're finding it tricky, that's because it is. Yeah. <laughs> so if we're going to think about um, a thesis statement and three sort of key ideas that we might work through in talking about how Hughes's writing strikingly portrays the telegraph wires, then um, we think our three key ideas are going to be something to do with the way Hughes defamiliarises um, the telegraph wires, makes them seem strange and unfamiliar. They're actually very familiar. We see them all across the landscape, but he's trying to get us to look at them again yeah. and to recognise something more uncanny, maybe even slightly sinister about them. Well, I think maybe because they're so much part of the landscape that we don't even notice them, and that's his way of making us stop and think about them. Yeah, so there's some writing techniques he's using to make them seem strange. Um, I think he's also interested in contrasting human ingenuity and technology, uh, that these, you know, these telegraph wires enable humans to communicate across large distances, barren landscapes, um, all of that thing. They overcome some of our human limitations. Um, but contrasting that with the, the elemental forces of the more in particular in this poem, which, um, which can actually make the wires seem quite precarious. And then thirdly, um, a related point really, um, something to do with the way he uses a change of scale at the end of the poem to juxtapose our human desire to overcome our limitations using technology with the idea that there may be larger cosmic forces of fate and destiny that mm. are actually playing us and drawing out of us the tones of suffering and grief. Yeah, which, and I mean, that is something you will recognise from the other poems as well, because Hughes often places humans against that kind of broader universe, sun, stars, moons, all those kinds of things. It's just here we, the human presence is through technology, isn't it, rather than the yeah. individual human being. Absolutely. And no animals. No animals. Unusually. Should we talk a bit about telegraph wires? Because like, yes. the actual nature of the technology is a bit odd. This poem yeah. was written in 1989. Yeah, and I, I was saying to Mr Hughes... Before, uh, Mr Hughes? <laughs> Interesting little <laughs> statement. I was saying to Mr Briggs before we started this podcast that I'd assumed it was written a bit earlier than that because it feels in some ways slightly more old-fashioned. But maybe that's because of the defamiliarisation. He's writing about the telegraph wires as though there's some new yeah. innovation. So telegraph wires would have been used for the transmission of telegrams. Um way back at the early part of the 20th century. Um, communications, a much older form of communications, yeah. where the little sort of almost Morse code-like taps would go down the wires and then somebody at the other end would be transcribing that into words on a little card. Very, very short, succinct messages. You couldn't send a long message no, by... Because you paid by the word, didn't you? And yeah. It was really expensive. But, I mean, as you were mentioning, in um, World War One, it was a way in which a lot of people received completely life-changing news um, of bereavements, um, 
husbands who died in the trenches, yeah. that news might well be transmitted by a, something of this sort, like a, a telegram. But by 1989, the, yeah, nobody that, really sends telegrams anymore then. Do and we? that technology, the wires that you see, um, are actually being used by the telecommunications network. So he's actually talking about telephones, really, but he's called it telegraph wires. What do we think about that, that title then and that, that word? Is it, it's part of the defamiliarisation? I think it's part of defamiliarisation, but I wonder whether it's also that sense that it's the kind of development of technology as well, that it starts off in one way, it becomes something else. and In a way, almost the infrastructure is staying the same, but it's, it, the way in which it functions is changing slightly. Yeah. And in the end, the sort of end purpose of all of it is to communicate. Yeah. But so it in happens way, in slightly different ways. Yeah, in that way, it's they're, they're the same, aren't they? It's sort of interchangeable telegraph, telephone. So for me, this poem, I'm going to do a little bit more context as well, because for me, this poem um, reminds me of an earlier poem by somebody called Stephen Spender, a poet writing in the 30s and 40s. Um, and his poem, Pylons, which actually gave the name to the Pylon School, um, a group of poets who, in that period of modernism, are very interested in writing about the changes taking place in the country and across the landscape because of technology. Pylons were brought in in the 30s as part of the development of the national grid. A lot of people didn't have electricity wired up to their houses until that time. And so the development of those pylons, suddenly they all appear like these giant statues across the landscape. And that must have been quite striking because it would have changed the appearance of the the yeah. English landscape uh, quite strikingly. And I mean, we, we've sort of got used to them. And, and I know some people might claim that they have a certain kind of architectural beauty, a bit like um, wind farms and things. But in, in one sense, they're quite a blot on the landscape, really, aren't they? They're suddenly yeah. appearing in all these areas of, you know, moorland and countryside everywhere, um, really just to serve human needs. Yeah. And that's right there in the first line, isn't it? That little juxtaposition of take telegraph wires a lonely moor. Yeah. Um, the contrast between the lonely moor and the and, the, and then these uh, the imposition of this um, technology upon that landscape. Is there anything else you find interesting about that opening line? I think the... it, it it almost makes it sound, doesn't it, as though the the you know it's that thing about you know who's really in control, and often human beings think they are, but mm. often Hughes kind of reminds us that we're really not. But there's almost a sense that there's that opening that take um, is that sense of sort of control that human beings just kind of take the landscape, take their technology, and they're kind of marrying them together. And it's also a bit recipe-like, isn't it? Instructional, you know, yeah. like, take three, three ounces of flour and some eggs and you're going yeah. to make this. Or, or a chemistry experiment. Yes, or a or... chemistry experiment. So I think it's got that sense of experimentation. But I think it's also got that sense of kind of human arrogance as well, that the moors are there and we can use them however we like, yeah. because we want things we want. There's a sort of suspenseful caesura, isn't there, in the middle of that second line. In fact, there's a caesura yes. in the first line as well. There's a series of little pauses, a little sort of pattern of silence. Take telegraph wires. A lonely moor, line break, pause. And fit them together, together. pause, yeah. the thing comes alive in your ear. There's a little kind of moment of anticipation created by I, that yeah, caesura, isn't there? That second caesura is really important because it's been quite functional up until that point, hasn't it? And then suddenly it's like, it's a bit like that bit in um, Frankenstein, isn't it? it? Is. It suddenly joins everything up and it fizzes into life. So it's like you've got constituent parts at the beginning and then this is the alchemy of the thing it actually creates and i think that the sort of deliberate vagueness of that phrase the thing yeah contrasted with comes alive does sort of convey that sort of almost frankenstein monstrous nature of this 
this creation, this surprising creation. So we're assuming that's just the telephone then, the thing that's coming alive in your ear. Or is it the sound? Because sometimes, sometimes electric pylons things make a kind of fizzing sound, don't they? They do. Especially... So is it that that translates to the receiver in your ear in the old days when we had those you know, big clunky phones? See, my feeling in this poem is that there's two types of sounds. There's the sounds that are channeled down the wires and which come into your ear through the telephone receiver. Yeah. And then there's the sounds... You know, if you have telegraph wires on a lonely moor being blown around by the wind and the elements and with electricity fizzing through them, they do. They can sometimes make a quite sort of uncanny sort of fizzing noise, the spark of the static or whatever yeah. it is that's channeling down them. So I think there's the noise made by the wires in the landscape and then there's the noise going through the wires. And they're both kind of a bit disturbing and a bit that's uncanny. That's quite interesting as well, isn't it? Because one is deliberate, because that's what it's been designed for, is to transmit the telephone calls. Yeah. And the other one is just what happens when you put it in the landscape. Because if you look at that third couplet, when he talks about it being picked up and played yes. like an instrument... Yeah, so you have the musical... The idea of the... Things. You know, he's sort of personifying the sound of the wind blowing through the wires as being like some kind of Aeolian harp. Yeah. But, you know, some creature has picked it up and playing it like an instrument... So he is talking about the exterior sounds of the wires yes. as well as the, the, the news being transmitted along them. That line as well always reminds me a little bit, there's such unearthly airs, one always reminds me a bit of The Tempest. Yes. <laughs> so it's this kind of you know, celestial music that's yeah. kind of happening in the interplay between the telegraph wires and, and the elements. The aisle is full of noises, yeah. 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 But I think unearthly is interesting as well because, again, it suggests something which he often does, which is... You know, this is technology, you've created this, but it's, it's slightly supernatural, there's something slightly magical about it. Yeah. And in a poem which is interested in sounds and talking about sounds, I think the sounds <clears throat> that Hughes is making with the words themselves in those middle couplets are really interesting because that such unearthly airs, the ear hears and withers. You can hear that repeating pattern of yeah. assonance yes, you've got those vowels, in those ear hour sounds which do feel quite musical, but kind yeah. of, well, not quite like a cat screeching, but, you know, they've got a kind of... They've got that open-ended feel of wind passing through something rather than people speaking, haven't they? And that's they? quite contrasted with the sort of dental, fricative um, alliteration on that couplet that comes before with the so oddly, so daintily made it is picked up and played, yeah. which sounds really kind of precise. It's like somebody plucking a... Harp or it is. I don't know, something it's exactly like that. like that. But then it suddenly kind of opens out, the sounds themselves are more like the reverberations, and you've got that kind of idea of wires twanging and making reverberating noises. What do you make of the um in the one to the in the fourth couplet there, um the use of withers there before the exclamation mark? Yeah, I mean Is that again a kind of reference a bit like a kind of lighter version of what we get later on, that the thing that you might be hearing is a thing that is going to be negative. Yeah, and causing yeah. some kind of diminishment of... Yes. Because it empties human bones, a shrinking, uh, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, withers is more to do with plants, isn't it, really? It's like that have yes. been... shriveling and Shriveling, dying. deprived of yeah. the sources of life and sustenance. And something about these sounds is, um, yeah, depleting um, vitality. Which is odd, because it doesn't feel like that until you get to the word withers, I think. No. I mean, it, it actually almost seemed be... quite positive in those two yeah. previous, you know, the oddly and daintily picked up and played and the unearthly airs, and then suddenly you get You're withers, expecting which is... some artists yeah. to produce some great sounds, but actually what comes out is this kind of moaning, plangent, unearthly airs, yeah. ears, withers. I mean, in the second couplet as well, I mean, we've got 
another sound which is the whispering mm. as well which um just slightly... I think is interesting yeah why are they whispering yeah is it is it because the messages that are being relayed are things that other people can't hear and there are secrets that are yeah people are telling each other secrets i think absolutely it's like Nobody is listening to things they're ashamed to say or things they wouldn't want to be overheard. I mean, in the old days, very occasionally, you used to get crossed lines. Do you ever remember those? Where you'd pick up the phone and you'd you'd like have a moment where you're in somebody else's telephone conversation, and you kind of come out of it. Um, I never understood the technology of how that worked. (laughs) Yeah, somewhere an operator who plugged a wire into a socket somewhere, and something had happened with the electricity or the static or something. Yeah, and you were actually eavesdropping on somebody else's conversation. And they wouldn't necessarily know that you were there. Because we um, move, because sound-wise, we, it comes alive, then you have the whispering, then you have the kind of music, then there's the kind of withering. So it's quite interesting sort of tracing the way that the sounds work. Well, you've also got the juxtaposition between the towns whispering to towns over the heather through the privacy of the, the, the wires. Yeah. But then we've got that qualifying conjunction, but the wires cannot hide from yeah. the weather. So they can hide... You might be able to hide up to a point, but then the second line of that couplet is bringing in the idea that actually there's also going to be an, an inevitability about some kind of exposure. Yeah. And also that sometimes when the weather's really bad, your telephone lines would go down and it stopped working. So that yeah. we might be very ingenious and create all these wonderful things, but in I the end, the weather can have the last laugh if it chooses. I think that's exactly it, isn't it? Because the lonely more and the not being able to hide from the weather even reference to the header as well, which is a bit sort of barren. Those are definitely there to kind of emphasise this idea of these sort of primal atomistic yes. landscape, which, you know, we've got our clever human ingenuity yeah. and we've made this clever stuff, which is enabling us to sort of, I don't know, somehow sustain an area, an aura of civilization. but actually we're quite vulnerable to yeah. these more powerful and elemental forces. I think Hughes reminds us of that a lot. I was doing um, horses earlier with the revision group this morning, and it's that same thing, isn't it? You know, these landscapes have been here since the dawn of time, and they're still, you know, the moor is probably going to be there later on once the telegraph wires are long gone for whatever reason. So I think he's kind of reminding us of that at the beginning, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's going on then? Because there's a sort of shift, isn't there, after yeah. Withers? yeah. We get yeah, the, focus the revolving ballroom of space. We've kind of scale changes completely. We've now got some, and we're sort of right up in the sky, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. And we've got that sense of the Earth revolving, the metaphor of the ballroom of space. The ballroom would be strung with like a glitter ball and lights, yeah. wouldn't Is it? Is that the stars? So that's the stars. Yeah, yeah that's the stars. Yeah. But it's a slightly sort of vertiginous and disorientating feeling because the. If you imagine standing in the middle of a ballroom and looking up and then there's and like a spinning light, spinning glitter ball. It'd be like looking up at the night sky and sort of, yeah, feeling as though the whole universe is kind of swirling around you. So there's a sudden sort of shift of scale um, and into the cosmic and, and these kind of more, even more sort of powerful elemental forces because bowed over the moor up in that revolving ballroom is a bright face, which must be the moon, right? Yes, one of my students did ask when we were reading this whether whether I thought that was God. <laughs> but I think it's just I think I think it's literally the moon, isn't it? But it's all that sense of other things kind of being because if it's the stars, then that must be the moon. But there is this sense that there is something bigger beyond us, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a it's a force of fate or destiny. Is yeah. it a sinister one? Is it a kind of witchy hecate moon, or is it like a? 
I think it, I think given what happens in the final couplet, I kind of do tend to read it like that because that final line is is um, kind of a very powerful one to end on, isn't it? And it doesn't, you know, sometimes some of the Hughes poems will sort of circle back to where they started at the beginning. Yeah. Um, or they'll kind of look outwards to horizons or something. This one doesn't. This one goes right back into these empty human bones. So I think that would make me read that bright face as being somewhat sinister. I think it is. Yeah. So he's so he's suggesting then something about these powerful, fateful forces, which are beyond our control. We can set up telegraph wires across the landscape, and we can develop human communication. But actually, we can't construct control the stuff of human life, which which is going to be the basis of the stuff we tell each other across these yes. wires. The human drama, that's out of our hands. That's subject to these more fateful, sinister forces. But, I mean, going back to the ballroom thing, I mean, obviously that works in the sense of the kind of revolving lights and so on, but I mean, ballroom is an interesting one, because that's quite celebratory, isn't it? Hmm. Which, I don't know, how do you think that kind of fits in? Yeah, and it's to, to do with sort of, I don't know, sort of synchronised movement and... I suppose it's community it's as well, as it's another way of communicating, mm. another way that humans have of communicating with each other as congregating and dancing together yeah and and um, that image of bowed over the moor the bright face drawing out of telegraph wires the tones sounds like a continuation of the musician idea oh what it's almost like from, it's almost like a conductor yeah taking the music like out if you were playing a sort of violin or whatever you'd yeah. be like sort of bowed over it wouldn't you you'd be yes. up in the sort of music box yeah, i hadn't thought of that and actually. draws out of telegraph wires the tones sounds like a musician producing sounds from this stringed instrument, yeah. which is the, the telegraph wires. So for me, that's an image of the moon as a kind of, yeah, as an orchestrating moon as maestro. force, or moon as maestro, <laughs> or something like that. Um, it's playing us. Because the telegraph wires are also really sort of, they're sort of standing in for us, aren't they? Because yes. the tones, is, yeah. it's the stuff we're telling each other about our yeah. human dramas, our jealousies and our rivalries and our griefs and bereavements and tragedies. Yeah. It's all I mean, that, that. that's made slightly abstract in this poem, isn't it? Because, it, because it's through the technology. Yeah. So, um, what do you think about the, um, I know one of the things that students always say to me they find hardest to write about is structure, and particularly in terms of sort of stanza lengths and things. So, I mean, what would you say about the fact that, I mean, there are a number of poems, aren't there, where he uses to use couplets for various different reasons, I think. Um, and I wonder what, what we think he's doing here. I mean, the, rhyme, the pattern of rhyme and the, the assonance and the, the, the pattern of sounds feels to me to have this kind of musicality, mm. which relates to this idea of the the sounds made by and travelling along the wires. The fact that they're in couplets, I suppose, is to do with, I don't know, I mean, things things communicating to each other in yes. twos. town I mean, whispers to town, town whispers somebody to town. phones somebody else. If you're on the phone to somebody, it's like, and unless yeah. you've got a cross line, <laughs> then it's just you a one and to one. it's a one-to-one. One. The wire's strung from one telegraph to another, to another one. one. So I think it's about this idea of yes. connecting two things by yeah. the wires. Yeah, that works. And I think, so I, I think I'm probably reading the couplets like that. Yeah, I think that does make sense. Yeah. In the same way as something like Rodeer, which I was talking about to somebody today, you've got the speaker and then the two deer. 
So yes. it's two in that sense, and then the deer are two, and also the deer are quite hesitant, so it's almost like there's an unfinished sense that you get with the And there's the also like a curtain between two sort yeah. of versions of reality, yeah. like the mundane, quotidian, yeah. ordinary reality, and then the, you know, the sort of hidden, secret, occult yeah. one that the roe deer were revealing. So I think from a, to be pragmatic from a second, from an exam point of view, you just need to find a kind of hook to put that on. But remember, structure isn't just about like whether it's quatrains or couplets or whatever it is. It's about all the things that we've been talking about, like caesuras, for example, which actually in this poem are really important about why, why you're choosing to end something in the middle of a sentence and start it again there, which always makes you stop and focus on yeah. that um, particularly. And I think you're, the thing you were saying about the telegraph bar is kind of like sort of being a sort of abstracted way of standing in for the humans who are communicating along the telegraph wires is a form of metonymy or synecdoche or... Like, he talks about the ear hears. Yeah. And he doesn't just mean the ear, he means yeah. the person. He's using the ear metonymically to mean the person. Um, I mean, do you think I, the fact that the... that it's sort of abstract, it's also part... I mean, is there... Is there some kind of comment on technology, which, although on the one hand is giving us methods of greater communication, is also in a way slightly removing us from that because whenever any new kind of you know innovation comes along people go oh no it's the end of civilization all oh, social media terrible oh you know um television nobody will ever read a book again so i don't know if there's any there's an earlier am, I, poem. am i reading too much into it as no there's an say. earlier poem by hughes which this one reminds me of which is called do not pick up the telephone it's quite an odd poem and in it he talks about he compares the telephone to an altar of death he says it's a bad god. He calls it a plastic crab. Um, and he talks, he, he warns not to pick up the detonator of the telephone, which is a, a great image for me. The idea that, I mean, phones are different now from what they used to be, but like back in the early 80s, you know, a phone would have, it, it would be made out of Bakelite and it would be a big clunky thing. Yeah. You'd pick it up and it would make a sort of funny noise, a sort of jarring, jangling noise. And you put it to your ear and it'd be like, well, what, what am I going to hear? What's happening? Well, it's and interesting you say like... that. Because um, there's a Plath poem where she calls the phone a muck funnel. <laughs> there you which go. I think is really interesting. Is because of what idea. she hears on the other end of it, the conversation that she has. But that's the human element, isn't it? It's, it's almost like you're blaming the technology for the things that human beings do to each other and the news that they're therefore imparting. But it's that idea that through this kind of seemingly ordinary, everyday device could come the news which yes. is going to completely flip your world yeah, on its head absolutely. and turn everything upside down it's going to set off a bomb yeah. in your life the detonator of the telephone i mean he says at the end of that poem he says don't pick up the detonator of the telephone because a flame from the last day will come lashing out of it and a dead body will fall out of the telephone that's the last line wow. of the poem so that's which, sort of implicit perhaps here but not this anywhere near as feels like he's returned yeah, to that really idea because he talks about the the telegraph wires sort of drawing out of telegraph wires the tones that empty human bones and yeah. that like that's taking the marrow right yes. which is the squishy stuff inside yeah. your bones um so it's like hollowed you right out to the core like there's nothing left you're... yeah it's a bit like a metaphor of somebody stealing your soul or something isn't yes, it? like sucking it is. the life out of you completely it's like a really powerful yeah. hyperbolic last line it's even a foreshortened last line as well isn't it I mean, it's quite the an toes. animal last line as well, isn't yeah. it? Because it's like it's almost like you're kind of sucking on the bones of something and it is, eating yeah. the marrow out of it. Yeah. Um, and so it's chilling. It's utterly yes, chilling. Yes, it, it is. And it is that idea that yeah, in this in, into your life can intrude this devastating 
news. I mean, I think that although there are some kind of hints earlier on, that last line does kind of, you know, it's quite shocking, isn't it, in the context of the poem, reading it for the first time. Absolutely. Yeah, and that masculine rhyme on tones and bones yeah. as well just kind of underscores that whole point, doesn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, do we think we've, we've kind of covered it? I think we have. I mean, I think that, um, you know, as we said at the beginning, um, this is a really tricky poem. And we feel it's quite interesting. The poem, we've, we've talked about this as a department quite a lot. The poems they've selected, it sometimes feels as though they've selected a range of poems that are totally right for a GCSE exam and some other poems where you wonder how carefully they'd read them and thought about them mm. um, but I think um, I think with this one you, you do need to be tuned up really carefully to all yeah. those little nuances because you've only got how many lines two four six eight ten twelve lines yeah. which is not very many mm. so we well, hope that's helpful to you. yeah we hope we're giving you a few thoughts there to sort of pursue and follow but do continue to look at the especially the patterns of sounds I mean I think there are more yeah. examples aren't there of um, sort of place of alliteration with ballroom, bowed, bright face. You know, there's quite a lot going on, yeah. I think, sonically in the poem, which you could... You and could remember, you can about. upload the... There's a handout that goes with this podcast um, that um, glosses some of the vocabulary you might have used that you might not know about um, and has some little nudges and pointers to remind you which bits of the poem to look at. And also, um, your teachers will have... Probably will give you, if they haven't, there's a lit charts um, on telegraph wires as well and then well we sometimes have slightly ambivalent feelings about lit charts because they can be a bit kind of you know over detailed i think maybe for a program like a poem like telegraph wires that might be quite useful to have some extra material but make sure you understand it and absorb it if you don't talk to your teachers yeah okay great thanks very much bye